All right, well, it's good to continue on in our series in Romans. We're going to unpack it a little bit further. Last week was just defining uh, in the verses, in, in verses 24 through 28, and looking at God's definition of homosexuality, and it's really a result of rebellion. That's kind of this whole section is this, we saw that he really emphasized the, the righteousness that comes from God and the power of the gospel. And then he does this complete 180 and turns and looks in the other direction and says, this is why my wrath is poured out on unrighteousness. And he goes through, uh, basically he keeps going down, 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 down and how bad it gets, what rebelling and turning our back on God, what it really does uh, to us, not only spiritually, but physically, and what it does not only physically, but mentally. Um, and if you're wondering uh, about, uh, he left all of those respectable sins for the very last. Um, so uh, don't worry, we've got more to conquer and and to go through in verses 28 through 32 in Romans 1. So today, I want to really, so we saw what God's, what happens when we rebel against God and God's definition of homosexuality. This week, we're going to look at, well, what do we take from that? Where do we go? And is that really Paul's thinking through Scripture? And we're going to go look at other verses in which God, uh, Paul is describing um, God's intent on sexual immorality and sin against the body and what that does. And then we're going to look at Paul's response and God's response to these sins and what is available in what's available to those who are committing these sins. So like I said last week, we were digging this big pit in this hole, and this week we're going to slowly begin to allow God uh, to help us out of that uh, thinking. And ultimately, I hope and desire that we answer that question, why is this important? And we can answer some of that because it was running rampant during Paul's day, and at this fledgling church was being started, he wanted to shed light on something that was this natural rebellion because of our sinful flesh and what it does and if we allow that sin to creep in unawares into the church, it will directly affect the church. Paul loves the church. In fact, he's, he's longing in verses 8 in chapter 1. You don't forget the context that He just loves the believers and what the gospel has done. And he wants that to continue. And he's giving us the flip side of what it looks like, uh, unrighteousness looks like. Of course, the gospel is how God's righteousness is revealed, how we know what's right, how we can even live right. If we're not living by the gospel, then we're going to be naturally affected by unrighteousness. And so this is vitally important that Paul and through the power of the Holy Spirit is giving us God's word to shed light on the reality of how sin will drastically affect all of mankind and ultimately our thinking. We know that culture is running rampant today to declare any kind of sinful lifestyle natural, even though it's not natural. Um, and it, God calls it sin. Our culture calls it, you know, they try to find ways to accommodate, to redefine God's definitions. And so it's very vital, and we, we took the time um, to look at it from God's very perspective, how he views it, so then that way we do not minimize it. And as we look at the results of what it does, to the church. So it is going to be quite an adventure today. I, I will get uh, passionate and I will get, uh, I will talk fast as I try to get through it. And um, I keep trying to cut my notes down. And that, that uh, I cut through a lot of the introduction last week. So this week I'm going to give you the introduction from last week 
in our first point. So I'm going to have to go fast. So Lord willing, we'll get through it uh, in a good uh, in a good manner uh, this morning. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that as we work our way through your word, we can see context, we can see purpose um, defined by you. Ultimately, it's not, Lord, our desire to know uh, how I feel or how our culture feels. Lord, ultimately, the, it's up to your intent. What did you intend uh, in your word? And Lord, may we see that intent and then may, Lord, we learn about it and how we can impact um, for the sake of the gospel, for the good news, how we can carry that good news. And Lord, not allow the good news as um, Pastor Rob, as he shared that illustration of the window, to muddy up the window that the believers would not see a clear view of the good news, of the washing and regeneration of, our, of us, of taking our sin and removing it. And Lord, that it's not about our goodness, but it's about you and your work. It's about your holiness. It's about your character and who you are. And so Lord, may we learn from this and to be careful not to minimize, minimize your truth and fall prey to some of the prevailing philosophies that has wrecked the churches through the ages. May we arm ourselves with your truth and be prepared for, to give hope to every question that is asked of us. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. It gives healing and health to our bones, to our body. It gives health to our community. It gives health to our relationships in the church family. Lord, and may we use that to bless and encourage and help one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Romans chapter 1, it was read to us, we see that we were described this idea of homosexuality in verses 26. The reason that God in his rebellion, or not in his rebellion, in our rebellion to God, I just messed this up. I did what I shouldn't have done, and I hit the, the first button. <laughs> there we go. Great. We see that he describes it for us. He says, for this reason, God gave them up because of their rebellion, because of their turning against God, not honoring God, but honoring themselves to dishonorable passions for their women in the culture he's talking about, exchanged natural relations. So first of all, he describes it as dishonorable passion or distorted passions. It's distorted from God's view of a good, righteous pattern. You notice that he's against all unrighteousness. He's talked about since verse 18. And he's describing it that way, that it's deformed. The things that are natural fleshly desires, our sinfulness in our life, devoid of God, is unnatural. It produces unrighteous passions. And that's what he's talking about. And it says, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So it's not something that's natural. It's, it's against nature. And it went on to say that they were consumed by their passions, that they fed their passions. They let their passions basically control them to be out of control in the way that they used their Body, And that's what they described all the way through how it affects both men and women as a result of giving into their lust. If you go back to verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart, uncontrollable passions to control their heart. So now passions and desires are controlling their heart. We see a result of that rebellion and giving their heart to lustful passions is a result of rejecting the creator. That's what basically homosexual is a pattern of, is rejecting the creator, his image, and the image that he created us for. In this, we see that they were abandoned by God, and therefore God 
they abandoned God, and therefore they abandoned God, and they basically began to exhibit even more horribly mentioned things in verses 24 through 32, including all of the sins he he is going to uh, talk about uh, in the next few verses, in verses 28 through 32. The result was not an evolution in progress, but a degeneration and a regression. They became fools, as Proverbs talks about, when they talk about that they did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did that, and they destroyed one another. Homosexuality in these verses here, according to Romans 1, is a a predictable result of a society that directly sins or gives, feeds their sins and not honoring God and recognizing his truth. So we see from verses 18 through these verses, we see the result of the sin is threefold. They did not honor God. They turned their back on God. They did not hold God as great. We were talking about that this morning as one of the God's characteristics is his majesty, his greatness in all things and being above all things. And they didn't honor him for who he is. And that's the result. It continued to go down. It says the first aspect of not honoring God that they tried to suppress the truth. And if you look at you look at it in the verse 18 that they suppress the truth and then look at the very end. And verse 32 is, is that the ultimate result that they suppress the truth, and then they said, who practice such things um, deserve to die. They did, not, they did not only do them, but gave approval to those who practice them. So they, they suppress the truth and try to give approval for those, whoever practice these sinful things. They not only did not honor God, but they did not thank God. They didn't like what God created, and therefore they didn't thank God. They didn't think that what God created was worthy enough. They didn't want to be held to God's perfect and holy standard, so they did not give approval or thank God for what he'd done. They rejected his person, and they also rejected his work. There's a third aspect of this that we saw in this context that we saw in verse 24 from several weeks ago, and that is that therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In suppressing the truth and turning from God and continuing to live in sin, they continued in rebellion to God, and ultimately they began to fabricate a different form or something that was unnatural. They distorted God's natural view and that lie that they created, they begin to worship. So they create something entirely different from something that God had created intending to honor and glorify the Lord. They began to worship the fabrication of their desire of their own making for themselves. They began, it's in the context of the fact that they gave their lust of their heart. So they, their uncontrollable lust and passion that they desire it begins to take over all of the things of their life and then it directly affects what they use their body for. They began to worship something contrary than what God created. That resulted in the description that God gives us that it affects the way that they use their body. That's what the use of sexual immorality in Scripture is all about, is giving into your passions to where it distorts God's natural creation. Whenever it, it affects the marriage, it distorts the marriage when, when some sexual immorality is present. It distorts all relationships when sexual immorality is present. And and homosexuality is lumped right into that. It's a part of that. And that's the idea that he distorts all forms that God created the body for. You know, uh, Jerry was teasing about food this morning, God creating food. I'm glad that he created chocolate and maple bars and, you know, and apple pie. I'm go- but we distort that, right? Like when we eat the whole apple pie. Or when we eat, you know, when we eat all these other, you know, when we eat a dozen donuts like I used to do. 
and uh, now it hurts a little bit too much, so I don't do it, but, <laughs> and it's not good. But we distort what God creates, we distort for our own personal use. We end up making a reason, oh, it just tastes so good, I have to have another. And we ignore the natural consequence to something that's not natural. And that's what happened. They ignored the natural use that God created the body, and therefore the natural outcome of that rebellion was what he described in verses 24 through 27. And that was that homosexual lifestyle. Our culture is really bent on trying to do everything they can to make that and to redefine that as being something that's natural. It should be of no surprise because we live in a post-Christian world. Ever since, you know, you saw the 20s and the 40s and, the, and down to the 60s, there was, and there was this huge push to remove God out of everything and to, to start to follow man's natural thought on things rather than God's thought. Uh, in that, there was, a great, uh, there was a great push for relativism or existentialism in the postmodern world. Basically, everything is created, uh, everything can be recreated based on our experiences and our desires. Desire becomes king. That's where revisionism and ultimately this deconstructionism that we talked about last week comes in. It's basically this progression in this natural rebellion against God where now the prevailing philosophy is this, is that individual rights are more important than anything else. But with that leads to the individual rights being supreme or that which becomes the most important thing. If you're wondering, has this ever happened before? It attacked the church right from the very inception. Basically, this, what we see happening over in philosophical, humanistic forms today that drive our society is what happened back in the early church when the early church fathers were fighting Gnosticism, fighting experience and individualism and, and the fact that they can go live any way that they wanted as long as they had this, this experience with God. Their, and that they could redefine their relationship with God based on their experience, and they would develop this special knowledge or special relationship with God. In, in, and we see the same thing that we have going on now with post-rational thought, and that is, thing, you know, we always joke about it, but common sense has been thrown out the window, right? It just goes, and that's what we, and we must avoid this at all costs. We must see the subtle lie that, that God is trying to show us here about unrighteousness and the way that society moves away from God, how they try to suppress the truth. They try to make what is natural unnatural, and they try to make what's unnatural natural. It all begins to be emphasis in our lives on lust and desire, passions. If you're wondering about this whole idea of sexual orientation, they either talk a lot about our, our gender dysphoria or gender orientation. Things that are being pushed in our textbooks with kids now, and even it's, it's been pushed for a lot longer than you thought, but now they're actually calling it sexual preferences or sexual orientation in the APA, the American Psychological Association, this is how they define sexual orientation. It's a part of an individual's identity that includes a person's sexual and emotional attraction to another person and the behavior and or social affiliations that may result from this attraction. They go on to describe that everything is about attraction. What you desire is what you become or what you are. Planned Parenthood says, well, what causes this? This is their definition. They said, it's not completely known why someone might be lesbian, gay, straight, or bisexual, but research shows that sexual orientation is likely caused partially by biological factors that start before birth. You notice the term, we skip over that, and we assume that they know what they're talking about, 
because they describe two events that took place a few years ago. And they say that it will likely, you know why they use the term likely? Because if you go read the two studies that they cite, there is no proof. And they will actually say that at the end of the conclusion. In fact, one of the, uh, in the Sage Scientific Journals, it says, we have tried to focus on the most well-established findings. In addition, we focus on research that has garnered uh, considerable public attention. Their idea is, is that the more attention that the study got, the, that's what they're going to refer to. The studies that they're referring to are both um, theories. And uh, the Rice Medical Group actually uh, wrote an article called Male Homosexuality Absence to the Link to the um, Microsatellite Markers and also LeVay, uh, a, a difference in uh, hypothalamatic, or the, talking about the hypothalamus, his whole study was basically the idea that the hypothalamus is smaller and therefore you're genetically going to be homosexual. So he was trying to prove that. He took uh, a bunch of men and women who had died who were known homosexuals and he, he went in and he noticed that their hypothalamus was smaller. Later on, uh, LeVay could not ever reproduce his study. And he says, people have wrongly been using my study for years to try to prove something that is not true from his own words. But they still refer to that study as being empirical or likely that this is biological. And it's interesting. They found that all the people that he had studied in his original study all died from the same thing. And everybody that they studied that died from this disease all had the same problem. Oh, it had no connection. It had a connection only to a disease that they died from. And that's what he says in his study in this scientific journal in his own words. The other one that they tried to prove, they found, and when they developed PET scans, they, they found out that it was their assertions and their theories were false. And the Rice Medical Journal approved it. They've never been able to, it's all been theory and conjecture, but they, they say it's likely been proven. They use those kinds of words. The problem is the emphasize on feelings and society and rather than natural, observable truth. Here's the lie to all these studies that I've been poring over. And it just made me sick as I was reading them. But here's the lie. It's highly subjective. It seems like, or this, could, this might be, but it's never this has actually been proven. They always use words like that because they can't prove it. And they even say it in their own conclusions. But they are touted in all the journals as being exactly why we have homosexuality today. It's important to understand, but that's not why Paul says it's here. It's highly subjective. It's personal self-identifying. In the, ADA, the APA, the American uh, Psychological uh, Association, they, they derived all their studies and they just took people and said, how do you identify? And then that is the reason you are that way. It was all based on self-identifying studies. There was no actual scientific study done. It's all relative. It's all based on how you feel. It's based on the current emotion. I don't know about you, but my emotions change quite often. My emotions about the way that you treat my family we were talking about that this morning. When I first got married, my emotions about how you treat my family were not as filtered as they are today. My emotions are a little bit more guarded and have a little bit of maturity behind them. But when I first got married, my emotions were a lot more out of control and a lot more driven by my passions. Um, I, one of those things was I really, 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 really hurt my family when I got married. And I told them, I no longer belong to you. I'm getting married. I have a new family. And I was so stupid when I was doing it. But I was being driven by my desire to be married. 
It was a strong passion. So you know what I'm talking about, some of you. It's all relative about your circumstance and your passions. It's all emotional. That's these, these things, what they're telling us and what they're promoting, it's very emotional. There's no diagnostic proof. It's all subjective. Keel and Dorsett uh, are commentators that do a lot of study in Hebrew, and they talked about this idea of, of emotionalism, uh, passions, desires, and talking about the Proverbs uh, 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25, where it says there's a way that seems right unto man, but it, end, it leads to destruction or death. It says this, they said, this is literally repeated in this idea of the way that seems right is literally repeated in Proverbs 16.25. The rightness is presented only as a phantom, for it arises wholly from a terrible self-deception. The man judges falsely and goes astray when, without regard to God and his word, he follows only his own opinions. It is the way of estrangement from God. For fleshly scrutiny, the way of vice in which the blind thinks to spend his life, to set himself to fulfill his own purposes. But the end thereof uh, and the result thereof are the way of death. He who thus deceives himself regarding his course of life sees himself as at least arriving at a point from which every way which now further remains to him leads only to death. That's the reality. Is that there's a way that seems right. There's a lot of conjecture. That's why there, this is a problem. That man has left God for a way that just seems right, but it is not built upon truth. It's highly subjective and built upon passions. It's built upon false ideas. And that's what Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is what he's saying. And he's saying that homosexuality is contrary to sound doctrine. It's not based on that which is solid or sound. You know, being sound or having something that is sound is very important. It's stable. The idea of soundness is stability. It's something that is solid. Paul says this in verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexual immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, uh, uh, I can't say that, perjurers, <laughs> Uh, and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in which according, uh, in accordance with the gospel of glory for the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. That is not according to sound doctrine. You see all of the sins listed here, the sexual immorality, and including the same idea. God, Paul is continuing the same idea that God sees it as unnatural, he sees it as not being sound or correct. So the same idea that he holds as he's sharing this with in Rome, he's giving it to Timothy as Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus. In fact, look, look at how he describes what they're, they're running after in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 3 through 4. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They don't want sound doctrine. They don't want, that's what doctrine means, by the way, is teaching. So they won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We see that today. Our society is running after anybody who will, they can get to tell them that their passions are okay, that it's natural. And it says in verse 4, and they will turn away from listening to the truth. They distort the truth because they desire for their passions to be supreme. The, I, the, the lust of their flesh, 
the sinfulness that they desire takes over, and so they turn from God, and they rebel from God. They don't want to hear the truth. They suppress the truth, just like he said in Matthew 18. So they turn from listening to anything that's true, and they wander off into myths. I like verse 5. It says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Think clearly. Don't let other things control your thinking. Endure suffering. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Paul is chained to the gospel and he's explaining to us that don't let the passions and the desires muddy the waters to where the gospel is thrown out. The word we get desires is is pathos or the path that we have. And the Greeks used it predominantly to describe Uh, bad desires. Almost exclusively in the New Testament, it's describing uh, bad desires, especially it's always related to sexual immorality and to idolatry. Listen to the way it's portrayed in Colossians 3.5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passions. That's out of control lust or desire evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Or 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, that idea of walking is having a lifestyle that is in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, I love this part, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Going right back to verse 18 in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being poured out on unrighteousness, but he gives us a clear path to righteousness, to good news that he has paid for our sins. But the world is walking away from that path and they're muddying and they're darkening that path. They're making it all about passions and desires. And this is, but here is where we make this great turn. Homosexuals have hope. Listen to what Paul says about when he talks about sexual immorality and homosexuality in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I love, let me turn, one of the rare occasions I didn't put the, the verse in my notes, but this is important. Look at how Paul talks about sexual immorality, homosexuality, but, and other sin, but look how he talks to himself or about himself. Look at verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in or from Christ Jesus in uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost I am the chief he's saying he lists all these sins in verse 9. He's, in verse 9 through 11, he said the sexual immoral, immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, the enslavers, the liars, the perjurers, the, uh, every else who is contrary to sound teaching in accordance with the gospel. All those that are contrary to the gospel, that are living contrary to the gospel, he says, I'm at the front of the line. And as we read through Romans 1, we have a hard time because of our culture who is lying to us about homosexuality and want to make it natural. We have a hard time 
digesting it, and sometimes we make excuses for it. God is not because he's shining the full light of his righteousness on the sin. On all these sins that we're going to talk about in in a couple weeks. But look at the hope here. We have the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the, uh, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God gave him his word, and he says, look, I thank him, that is Christ, who has strengthened me, who has judged me faithful, not because of my work, but because of God's work. Even more fascinating <laughs> that is that Paul groups himself with these sinners, he says, I am the chief. A lot of times we get stuck in all the philosophical rhetoric of our society and, and we don't just call it sin and turning our back on God. And God wants to deal with sin and he will deal with sin either by forgiving, by when you respond and, and seek his forgiveness through the gift of him dying on the cross for our sins, when when he saves you and he forgives you, he deals with sin and the wrath of God is satisfied because of what Jesus Christ did or all of his wrath will be satisfied when he pours it out on all your sin because you continue to rebel and reject him. But we see such a message of hope that God came to save sinners. And he said this message in in Mark 1, 14. Send, repent, and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is coming to redeem his kingdom, to come back to... And the sad thing is there's going to be a lot of people that have focused on love and just being loving, and they're not receiving the gospel. Because the teaching is more about being loving and it has nothing about dealing with their sin before a holy God that is coming to deal with sin. Why does Paul make such an effort to, to he is tracking homosexuality and Im, sexual immorality through as, as the churches have grown in the different cultures? I mean, look at 1 Corinthians. They They believed a lot of lies. They worshipped a lot of practices that were filled with lies rather than worshipping God. And Paul had it out with them. But then in 2 Corinthians, we see that he is so thankful that they turned and that they had godly grief. Remember that? We talked about that when we talked about God's wrath and we talked about the the fact that godly grief was meant to turn us back to him. But there's a such thing as worldly grief, grief that leads to death. Paul is saying here, if, if he can save me, then he can save homosexuals, he can save murderers, kidnappers, the ungodly. Any unrighteousness, anything that is impure, Anything that is deforming God's character, defaming God and what he created. There's hope, but there's also change. Sometimes we stop there and we don't add this to it, that homosexuals can change. Paul changed. You just look at the road to Damascus. When he encountered Christ, did Paul continue to be the same? He was utterly different. So much so that people's views of him were different. The people that were scared of him became people who loved him. The people that loved him became people that tried to kill him. That's what happens when Jesus gets a hold of your heart and when when you surrender to him and you respond to his gift of him dying on the cross and you total surrender, he will change you. If you go back to this verse, Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you know the context in verse 5, 
it says in verse 1, it says, it's actually important that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated by the pagans. Can you imagine that? You know the culture, that the Roman culture that they're in? Filled with debauchery? And he's saying, even there's things you are doing that they think is even worse. That's the context of this, of this open and rampant sexual, immoral that's in the church. There was even homosexuality in the church. And look at verse, in verses 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. He says this. He said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immorality nor the idolaters nor the, or, or the adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkens nor revelers nor swindlers all will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Wow. Do you notice that? Do you notice the language in which he uses such were some? Were. Past tense. Not continuing any further. It's what Paul goes on to reiterate in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New desires, new passion, new purpose, new outlook in life. The old way, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A life that is surrendered to Christ where the Holy Spirit is in control. Where we're walking because the Holy Spirit is controlling our walk. Walking according to the Lord. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a call, there's this ministry of call of being reconciled to God, having our sins dealt with. There isn't a ignoring the sin. There isn't a sweeping under the rug of the sin. Like what Paul said, in, or not Paul, I'm sorry, David said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He knew that he had sinned. He knew he was living in, in disgust before God, under the wrath of God. And he said, restore that relationship. Change it. And Paul is reminding that their salvation, their surrendering to God, involved a change in their lifestyle and an abandonment of their lifestyle, a new direction in their lifestyle, a new imitator of a lifestyle. They're no longer following man. It's changed. I love what it says in verse 12, it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. I'm not going to be dominated by anything. His one desire is Christ. It's not, his passions and his desire is dominated by Christ, nothing else. Do you notice what he says in verse 11? I love this. And so such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God did the work in their life. When they surrendered to God, God saved them, did the work in their life, and look at the work he did. The believers were washed. That means their old filth of their past life had been washed away. As a result, you were cleaned. The second thing, they, they were sanctified. They were set apart as holy for God's use. Not for the being using our bodies for our passions, but now we're in the hands of the Lord Almighty to be used for His passion, His desire. It describes one who's been set apart for special use. And then the third thing, believers have been justified. Believers have been judiciously declared right from all their sin. No matter what your sin or background or your failure and your transgression in your life, you can be set free from sin. The passion and the lusts that dominate our society is the problem. 
giving in to those sinful desires and passion. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the things of the world that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, those desires that he talks about in our text in verse 26 and 27 that are running rampant, that are causing unnatural things, they're going to die. Those desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, what we want, the pride of life, that what I want is more important than what God wants. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. See how many times he represents desire here? And how many times it dies? But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a new will, a new desire, a new love. And he goes on in, in chapter 3 and verse 8 in First John, it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice Righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It goes on and on and on, talking about desire, passions, and following the things of this world, rather than the Lord. Guys, there's such great hope, but we attack it from the wrong perspective. We attack it from a very dealing with passions and desires perspective rather than God's perspective, from a gospel perspective. When we ignore and we make excuses for the practice and the desires and the rampant and the redefinition of love, when we, we, we change, we exchange what is true for a lie and we redefine something that's good, that God created as good, and we worship the good and we don't worship God. And that's the whole point. Is he setting us up for the rest of Romans? And that is that you cannot focus on that which is ungodly. You will... Always turn your back on God. When we rebel against God, the reality is this, is that when we start to worship something other than God, we can take even a creation, whether it's our bodies that God created and was good, and we can turn it into something bad. You can worship family and turn it into something bad. You can worship love and turn it into something bad. And we see it all the time. Paul is saying, look, go back to the power of God. The passions and desires in your life will only take you further away from God. Romans chapter 1. Let's go full circle and then I'm, I'm done. And I mean it, I'm done. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it gives hope. Because it changes. Our giving into our passions will never change us for good. It'll just keep us going in the wrong direction from God and destruction. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God. We cannot make something right just because we like it. It has to be right because God is right. That is what we can take from this. Is This is what Satan uses. And he's used it, right? From the very beginning, Genesis 1. Did God really say... Look at the apple, or, well, I don't know if it's an apple, but look at the maple bar hanging there on the tree. 
It's good. Oh, it looks good. It smells good. Do you notice the passion and desire he infused into good? He defined the good rather than God defining what is right. And he got them to believe something that was not right. And now we feel the effects of it every day, of sin. But God, that didn't derail God. God loved us enough that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since before Genesis 1, even to now, God knew what would happen, and it didn't stop his plan or derail his plan. God is love. Don't let the world define that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to struggle through some things that is hard to hear. But Lord, may we protect your character and not allow the things of this world and the things of the evil one, the systems that he has created to distort the truth, to take us away from your truth. May we not let it impact our life. May we keep our eyes fixated on the gospel. May we agonize. May, we, may our passion be the same passion that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3, that I agonize to know Christ every day. Not that I've already attained all this, Paul says, but Lord, to, to be honest, we don't know you enough. May we not be driven by the passions of this world. May we not be driven by what we like or what we dislike. But may we be driven to know you, our Lord, our God, our Master, our Savior. May, Lord, we love you more each day and love the world less. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.